2: For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net.
1: Welcome to Seek Reality with your host, Roberta Grimes. Author and attorney Roberta Grimes will explore and illustrate how she, after an extraordinary experience of light and childhood, has discovered channels of communication to the afterlife and how these implications have an effect on our everyday lives. Please welcome the host of Seek Reality, Roberta Grimes.
3: This is Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes and I am delighted that you're with us today. One of the first bits of afterlife evidence I ever read was Sir William Barrett's wonderful 1927 book, Deathbed Visions, in which he actually coined the term Deathbed Visions. Sir William's wife was a hospital nurse. She brought home to him extraordinary stories of people who seemed to be seeing and speaking to dead loved ones in the hours before their deaths. In some cases, these dying folks seemed to see and speak to people that they hadn't even known were dead. Since Sir William's day, a number of scholars have done further work on this important field, including Carlos Osis and Erlander Haraldson's groundbreaking study of reports from 2000 doctors conducted in America and India. It was published as at the hour of death in 1977 Carla Wills Brandon's One Last Hug Before I Go, Raymond Moody's wonderful book about shared deathbed visions called Glimpses of Eternity, and Inica Koedem's recent and wonderful authoritative In the Light of Death. So other people have worked in this field. And all these books are wonderful. But even after so much great work, our guest today has managed to break new ground. And there's not much new ground being made in any of these afterlife-related fields. So this is exciting. Researcher Lisa Smart was fascinated by things that her own father was saying, not only just before he died, but over a more extended period. And she, she wondered whether what he was happening, his life was common. This was a new thing for her. So she began a careful study of accounts of the more lengthy letting go and dying process beyond those deathbed visions of more than 1,500 people. And the result is her fascinating new book. I love this book, Words at the Threshold. Welcome, Lisa. I'm thrilled that you're here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about how you not so much exactly, because it's easy to see why you'd be curious about the strange things that were happening in your, day in your dad's life as he moved toward his exit. But what what what's your background like? Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got to this place?
4: Yes, you know, as you were describing the many researchers who have written really very thoroughly about deathbed experiences. Um, I was thinking to myself, my goodness, here I am standing on such tall shoulders, you know, large shoulders. I know the feeling. (laughs) You know, and I thought to myself, where, as I have this conversation with you today, Roberta, where am I different? How am I different? Or how do I complement those other researchers? And I think... What I bring to this work is that I was trained as a linguist. And for me, I've always been interested in how language tracks our thinking processes, and our consciousness. So, for example, when I was at UC Berkeley studying linguistics many, many years ago, way back in the 80s, it was very fashionable to talk about the language of men and the language of women. Now that's really changed, but let's talk maybe about the language of the powerful and the language of the more submissive, right? So how language somehow tracks what is going on in our minds and how we think about ourselves and what our beliefs are. So uh, very quickly, we know that if someone feels more powerful than another person, they'll interrupt. They feel they have the right to interrupt frequently. And if someone feels in a less powerful position, they may ask more questions, something like nice day, isn't it? yeah, these are lovely, isn't it? So yes. why I'm giving all this background about language is we know that language language is powerful because it's not just about words on a page, or words going through space, but language actually tracks what's going on in so many other ways. So what I bring to this, my my true interest, is the connection between who we are as people and the words we speak. And so for me, language at the threshold holds very interesting, um, holds many truths or possible truths as we uh, study the whole process of death and dying and perhaps a world beyond.
3: I think one of the significant things about, and as I say, there's very little new scholarship in the whole area of afterlife studies, which is one reason your book is so great, because this is new scholarship, because, you you know, you tend not to find things unless you know where to look, and you're looking there, and what you've done, other than what, aside from what many other people have done, is you've looked earlier in, in a person's, pre-death life so yeah. you've found that things are happening really much before uh the the last day or two and i found that really interesting and i think many others will as well because there, we, we go through a, a, a transition period of i guess weeks i'd like to talk more about mm-hmm. that with you but that makes your book important because when people are helping other people to die well it's 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 very good not to make them feel they're suddenly strange or foreign or there's something wrong with them it's great if you can validate what's going on in people's lives at every point and you've given yes. people the power to do that that to me is very exciting uh. We're going to take another little quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking further with Lisa Smart about what happens in the weeks and months before we die.
2: This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network,
6: You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks and 30,000 old-time radio programs,
3: Welcome back to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes and my wonderful guest, Lisa Smart. Lisa wrote a book about something no one's ever really studied before, as far as I am aware. She's not looking just at what happens in the, say, the hours, most the day before death, but she's looking at what happens in the minds of dying people by looking at what they say, even quite a bit earlier um and i think it's especially important the work she's done because she's gone at it as a researcher but she wasn't an afterlife expert so part of what's fascinating and fun about her book is she didn't say okay we know this happens we know that happens it was like oh goodness look this happens and that happens why is it happening and she tried to understand it that way so her book really breaks new scholarly ground in this field and i'm, I'm delighted with it but Delisa. lisa talking about, how, uh, what's the period of time you think you studied before death, typically?
4: Well, you mean in terms of the transcripts that I received from people? Yes, yes,
3: yes.
4: I think it varied a lot. And as you're speaking, I'm also reflecting upon, um, you know, the, the transcripts I received and just really, really reflecting on that question. And it's an excellent one. No one's asked me before. And it very much ranged from... Gosh, in one case, I think three months, one daughter kept uh, transcripts of her father's final words for three months to people who just wanted to share the very final words of their loved one. So there's a tremendous range in the length of the transcripts. And, um, you know, it's something I hadn't thought about before. It might be a really good idea in the future to control that and be more aware of that in terms of the length of, of time, because, of course, you see very different kinds of things going on in the transcripts based on the length of time. Um, to some degree, you see some differences.
3: Talk about those, Lisa. What were some of the things that were happening three months or maybe, say, one month ahead of someone's transition that you noticed that was interesting and maybe consistent across more than one person?
4: Yeah, Um well, right before death, in the days, you know, days right before, you see much more, vi- you know, announcing visitations of people who have died before. So the visitations become more prevalent at, right before death. And, um, of course, loss of verbal, you know, people start using non-verbal, using their hands more and maybe making more references, uh, pointing upward to things to the unseen, a month or more away before dying, there begins to be these what I call sustained narratives. You'll hear people begin to tell these stories. So for example, one person will start talking about the train that is having mechanical difficulty. And um, I think Yeah, and I think it was maybe late November. He started talking about this train, and no one there was no train in the room with him, of course. And this is very common seeing metaphors of travel at end of life. But first, he started making reference to a train, and then a few days later, about the platform uh, being coming into view, and then talking a lot about different types of damage to the train. But there's this whole conversation over a period of weeks about the train. And there was also another narrative from this gentleman about a report that he was preparing for the committee. Um, and yeah, it was really it was very yeah. fascinating. So, um, you know, farther away from the moment of death, there seems to be more of these kind of preparatory narratives that occur. And if you get the transcripts, you know, a month or even three months before, you'll start seeing signs, I think, of these narratives of some kind of trip approaching, or you begin to see kinds begin to see shifts in consciousness, I think, by having references to things that are not seen to those um, who are nearby. And over the course of time, generally. You see a shift away from literal language, like please get me a glass of water, to increasingly symbolic, and then and oftentimes more nonsense and more gibberish, and then often nonverbal. So there's kind of this continuum that takes place in the days before someone dies.
3: Some of the people in the middle of talking about a trip or a party or some event coming up will... Say I have to have my passport, um, uh, or or there or some other thing that they think is missing. And then the way that the person sitting at the at the deathbed responds is important. If you say, uh, uh, "Oh, that's crazy," or "or stop talking nonsense, mom," then you're you're not helping. But if you say, "Oh, I have it right here. Don't worry about it," it seemed that was okay. Then mom was fine, right? That was kind of what we needed to do to support them.
4: Yes, and it's almost as if. We need to be open to the possibility of living in two worlds at once. You know, sometimes, just the way parents often do that with children. You know how children move in and out of imaginary space and time. Is that often happens as people are dying. And my father, as he was um, in, in in the dying process, he said to me one day about this must have been about six days before he died. Please give me the pencil. I need to thread it through to the other side. And he's so I gave him the pencil and he started pushing it like through his like through his body, like you know, like going through his body. And I I got very afraid because I didn't know what was going on, and this was of course before I did this research. So in a panic, I grabbed the pencil from him. I said, Dad, you're gonna hurt yourself. Don't do that. And it wasn't until recently, a couple months ago, I reviewed what I had written down in that interaction with my father. And I realized that when he was talking about the other side, it wasn't possibly just the other side of his body, but there may have been a metaphor for the other side as the afterlife or another dimension. And had I knew then what I know now, I would have said, Oh, Papa, tell me more. Yes. You know, tell me more.
3: So did you believe in an afterlife when you started this or were you thinking, you know no, there isn't such a thing. What was your mindset when you when you first began helping your dad?
4: Um, you know, when I was seventeen, I read Raymond Moody's Life after Life, and yes. I did it with my eyes wide open and my mouth wide open and yes, in awe. We all. Did. <laughs> yes. And I think I was someone who always wished it was so. But I never had the sense of knowing that I do now. And it's not that I know exactly what it is. I can't tell you that there's a big, you know, there's a guy on a big throne with a long beard holding a scepter, you know, or anything like that, or that there's a definite heaven or anything. That is certainly not part of what what my experience is now. But I do have a very real sense that consciousness exists beyond our brains, you know, outside of us. And um, and all the references people make to visitors coming and religious figures and also the premonitions people have about their own dying. Uh, There's so many indications from my research that, that there is definitely something that, that I would call consciousness. I don't know how long it continues. I don't know what it looks like on the other side or the other dimension, but I didn't I did not have this strong a sense of the aliveness or the reality of consciousness until I did this research.
3: Yeah, actually, it is eternal. It never began and it never will end. And
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: what you're doing is giving us this nifty little snapshot of a moment when it's converting Mm -hmm. back from what it has been through our Li- sort of at birth, yes. we have this consciousness that's transitioning from there to here, and we've studied that a lot more, but when it's yes. heading back in the other direction, you're breaking new ground in how it sort of reconverts back to, to what what for our minds is normal life, and, and that's where we're going again. So that's what makes this so much fun. Tell us briefly how Thank you too. established the Final Words Project, because you have a website to that effect, and that's how you gathered these these t- stories.
4: Yes, and just for your listeners, we are still gathering data. And every final account, words account that I receive, I read carefully and with tremendous gratitude. So, just want to let everyone know uh, we're still we're still gathering data. But the way um, I developed the final words project is I witnessed changes in my father's speech before he died and right afterwards I went to UC Berkeley where I went to school and studied linguistics went to uh, the databases to see what was already written assuming that there would be lots of material about the linguistics of end of life as we know there's lots of material about language acquisition in childhood and I found nothing nothing there's nothing. nothing um I was stunned. Now there was a fair amount of material about how doctors should speak to patients about death and dying, but there was nothing about what was going on in the language of the dying. So when I saw that, I it was as if I became possessed by just having to know. And I read everything I could find at that time about that about death and dying, including many of the books you mentioned um, in the opening of the show, and. And I came across Raymond Moody's book again, Life After Life, in his other book, Glimpses of Eternity, and read those. And synchronistically, about three weeks into doing all this reading, my mother had a friend who told uh, told her that, wow, you know, your daughter's interested. I'm going to be teaching a class with Raymond Moody in Alabama. Maybe she'd like to come. And um, I was delighted by the prospect, but it cost $2,000 and I was a teacher and money doesn't come easily to us educators. (laughs) Um, And so, but synchronistically, a few days later, my tax refund came and I jumped on a plane and spent five days with Raymond Moody. And at that point, um, really the final words project uh, was first conceived, you know, that's when it was really, really conceived, because he started speaking about his interest in unintelligibility. Most people don't know that Raymond was a PhD in philosophy, and uh, before he was a, a medical doctor and student, and um, so uh, he expressed an interest in language, in unintelligible language, and we just Hit it off right away, and at that point, I knew I wanted to study Final Words, and soon after the Final Words Project was born.
3: Give, give people the website. We'll give it out again at the end of, of our time together, but let people know where they would go if they wanted to read about this, and if they wanted to leave their stories.
4: Um www.finalwordsproject.org
3: This is great. There are some things that we know specifically we who study the afterlife because a lot is known about them and when we come back we're just going to take a quick break in a, in a minute or so And we come back we're going to talk about them and they include the visions and talking to people that we, nobody else can see or sometimes as dr moody in his groundbreaking book glimpses of eternity showed us we can't people other people can see them but these visitors, which seem to be a universal phenomenon, you know, what what more yeah. can Lisa tell us about those? And also terminal lucidity, which many people yes. don't know exists, but it's a common phenomenon and gr- a great, great bit of evidence that your mind really is eternal. And when you're in the process of separating from your body, there's a period of time when your mind is controlling it from the outside. So people who were who had Alzheimer's or you um, had a totally fried brain. Your mind is briefly separated from your brain, and you're talking normally into the room. It's one of the most amazing things, but all doctors yes. who witness a lot of deaths have seen terminal lucidity, and I want to learn more from Lisa about what she knows about that. So what we're going to do is just take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what I think are are two of the most interesting things that are well known by researchers about this period, just before we go home, this is Roberta Grimes's Seek Reality. We'll be right back.
0: Dreams are our personal gateways into infinite wisdom. Don't miss shamanic counselor and indigenously trained dream decoder Sandra Corcoran's inspiring book, Shamanic Awakening: Between the Dark and the Daylight. This remarkable work chronicles Sandra's 35 years of experience with diverse wisdom keepers and her initiations throughout the Americas and across the British Isles, Turkey, Greece, and Egypt. Sandy's knowledge of symbology, psychology, and myth influenced her dream blog and workshops,
3: Welcome back to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes and Lisa Smart, who is indeed smart. I can see where she got her name. She came up with a way to look at death from a very different perspective, from the perspective of the people who are just getting ready to make the trip, packing their bags, you know, checking the, the train schedule, whatever they're doing. Fascinating book. Her wonderful book. Talk about your book again briefly. Give people the, the title and where they can find it.
4: It's called Words at the Threshold, what we say as we're nearing death, and you can find it at um, most online outlets, amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, and and at my publishers, newworldlibrary.com. And library, I'm sorry, (laughs) and also bookstores and libraries uh, around the country.
3: One of the ways that we can tell that you're really a serious researcher is you have a serious research publisher who would never look at my stuff. I'm sure because I'm a little bit out there. But that's good. We've got to, it takes all kinds to do this work. So I promised people we would be talking about the two common phenomena that most people know about and have been and, and these have been well researched and documented. And the first is what we call deathbed visitors or death deathbed, deathbed visions, but more commonly we call them deathbed visitors. Tell you, tell people about what you learned about these folks that show up to help take us home.
4: Well, one of the very common things I heard from people um, in the study was that, for example, a daughter, uh, Sandra, was standing there, and her mother was talking about how uncomfortable she was, and then she turned to her side and started speaking with Earl, who was not visible to Sandra, and... Earl was her husband who had passed away, and she was speaking and turned to her daughter and said, oh, Earl is here. I feel so much better, oh. and I had many instances of that in my transcripts. Dr. Christopher Kerr, as you probably know, his work at the Center for Hospice and Palliative Care published a research study, and they I think it was 500 people, and in their research, they said there was at least 70% of people reported some kind of visitors, either in their dreams or just uh, in their visions, um, before dying, and so many of my transcripts had to do, especially those transcripts that were closer to the end of life, had to do with seeing people. Now, sometimes there were people that they knew or that their that their family members and friends knew sometimes it was just there's a woman in blue standing at my bed yes
3: yes um sometimes there were actually religious figures people have seen jesus they have seen moses um and and, but when in your view based on what your research suggests when do you think they start showing up typically or what's the earliest you've seen them
4: that's a really good question. I think I've seen them as early as ten days before. but um, that's another excellent question. and i I would it's definitely closer to dying. yes and but I would say ten days to seventeen days. I'm just thinking back to the specific examples I have. Um, yeah, I would be curious what, doc, what Dr. Kerr and his team found out uh, in their research in 2014. They may have that better documented than, than I did. You know, because a lot of the lens that I, I looked at things really specifically in terms of language patterns, because I wanted to see if there was shift in the patterns of language as people near death. And so some of these excellent questions you're asking me were not, at this point, the focus of my research. So they're they're great questions and, and ones I'll consider in the future.
3: Now, people listening to us are saying, ''Why the heck would that
4: happen?''
3: afterlife Mm. researchers have come to conclude that it happens because we just as when you're born you have no idea what's going on and then suddenly you're you're you go through this really skinny place and suddenly you're out in the light and the whole thing is a bad experience we don't understand (laughs) death that process any better than when we were being born we understood birth we don't really know what's going on yes and so Mm -hmm. it seems that that People that we're most likely to trust, and in some cases, it's only an animal. If we, if there, if we're, there was a hermit. There's a, in, in I think it's in um, Deathbed Visions, um, Sir Sir William Barrett's book. Uh, the only, the only guy he trusted was this old cart horse, and that's who showed up at yes. his deathbed. Remember that story?
6: Yes.
7: So
3: it, but whoever we're going to trust, because when we're out of our body, we're going to have to go with whoever has come for us, and that seems to be why it happens. And it's very variable. I, I'm not surprised you saw a variation. As far as I've been able to see, just from doing a lot of, of, of incidental research, it seems to be most common within the 24 hours before we mm-hmm. die. And many people don't see it, really, anybody, until then. But often, Often, you know, it's, it's within a week or so. And as you say, it could be two weeks ahead, depending upon the person. Maybe we don't even know why it would be so variable, but it is. But it's I think it's 100%. Some people die in their sleep or they die, um, you know, in a, in a coma or something. And maybe they don't see someone until they're out of their body. So no one hears them report right. that they saw someone. But I think it's universal. But when you're out of your body, look around. Somebody will be there who has come for you. I think it's 100%. Otherwise, you won't know where to go. You'll say, ah, uh, <laughs> where is that train? I kept thinking it was going to come for me. It doesn't seem to be here.
4: Yes. Yeah, I spoke to some hospice nurses nurses a few weeks ago, and they said for their team, the number one predictor that death is approaching is really not the vital signs that are usually associated with the dying process, but they actually... Uh, rely their prognosis on whether the person has seen a deceased yes. loved one so even in a medical environment now people are seeing this as a very very real thing I, I remember seeing on the on the internet. WebMD now actually talks now about these visions being a very real part of the dying process. So you know, maybe we are making some headway into people really looking at what's going on at end of life because I was absolutely stunned by what I discovered in terms of what a rich environment it was, not only in terms of language, but in terms of vision and experiences for people. It's really a remarkable time that many of us are just taught to be afraid of. Of, um. Yes,
3: it's a beautiful time, actually, for family. That, I mean, I urge anyone who has a very ill relative or if they're going to be at near a deathbed soon, read Lisa's book because that will put you very into a very comfortable place in dealing with people mm. who are going through this very precious time of life. And I think um, it's, it's, it's very encouraging to see what a detailed and, and rich period this is for most of those who are dying. Mm. They're really... They're really just their lives are really beginning again, and they're already partly living in that new life to come. It's very exciting. But let's talk about terminal lucidity because this blows yes. people's mind. What What oh. did you learn about it?
4: Well, I um, learned that it's something that just now is getting much more formal, inten- formal attention from researchers. But as a matter of fact, just this morning I received an account that I thought was so remarkable of terminal lucidity. This woman shared, I believe it was a woman, who um, I believe it was her father, had been completely unresponsive and this is what happens with terminal s- lucidity. Someone may be completely unresponsive, or maybe has Alzheimer's and has not really been very intelligible, especially yes. in their final days. And then suddenly, right before dying, there's this window of lucidity where someone suddenly speaks very clearly and lucidly in ways that people may not have heard for weeks, days, maybe even year- years, years,
3: years. Yes.
4: And um, in this case, this woman sent me an example and again. I I believe it was her father and he just was completely unresponsive but got up and looked at her and said life is a benediction Oh, how beautiful! and then went back and she said this is a man who is never religious was a never spiritual person so that was that was very remarkable for her to hear those words but the, some of the stories that I have in my book is um, the most startling one for me and came from someone who I consider very very credible someone I worked with and knew well His mother had Alzheimer's. So for three years, it was really difficult for him to feel like they had a sensible conversation. Then she went into a coma three weeks before dying. She was almost completely unresponsive. And then a few days before she died, she got up and had this sort of glow that some people describe. It's like the person is almost brightened, literally, when we talk about lucidity. And the mother turned to the son and said... I just want you to know, um, you know, the the, all the everything you need to make to settle my estate, all the financial records are in the third drawer down (laughs) in my desk in the study. And he was he couldn't believe it. And he went home. And indeed, that's exactly where all the files were. And then um, and people will come out of a coma and just say something like, tell everyone I'm okay and I love them. Or um, I never told you that I love you, but, you know, I, I wish yes. I did yes. So yes. And what's so fascinating to me about this period of terminal lucidity is that the words we hear are always words of love and reconciliation and kindness and yes. goodness. They're never mean or, or judgmental. Words, or at least from my data so far, I, they've only been words of kindness.
3: And that's all I've ever seen too. But what's to me especially interesting is that people whose brains, who was, whose material brains <laughs> were fried, <laughs> they exactly. recognized no one. They they'd been they'd perhaps have had Alzheimer's for many years. They had no one had heard them speak in a, you know several years, and they yeah. didn't know anybody. They looked blankly. They stared blankly. Exactly. They, They would sit up in bed, look normal, look at you, look you in the eye, and smile, and talk as if they were there was they'd never been sick. And medically, it's impossible for this to happen. That brain is totally short circuited. Exactly. And
4: And it was one of the things that completely convinced me that there is something going on than just the brain being the seat of everything. I just heard another story two days ago. Um, very touching and I don't have it right in front of me, so I'm, you know, I don't have the exact words, but this gentleman shared with me that his wife was in a coma, I believe it was a year and, um, and she came out on Christmas day and, or maybe the, the day before or late the day before, you know, the Christmas Eve, but she had asked, is it Christmas because I have a gift for you. Oh, but how? Wow. How wow. did she know? How yes. did she know? Yes. Um, so uh, anyway, yes. It's, and it's very exciting. There are researchers now who are uh, going to be doing more research into this. Because there's no way to explain what's going on unless we can think of consciousness existing somewhere outside of the brain. Yes, right.
3: which, which indeed is the case, and which is, makes it sad that they continue. Scientists continue to look for the source of consciousness inside the brain, when in fact there are phenomena like this which refute the notion that that's even possible. So yes. it is. This is a very exciting time to be alive. We're learning things I now. Agree which nobody knew before. Um, Just reminding you, we're talking with Lisa Smart, who I guess is our new expert on the broader period before we die. And there is so much to be learned from that period. It's really a very rich time, which we've Largely, even afterlife researchers, have we've talked about the, the deathbed visitors, but we've hardly talked about anything else. And um, I have a feeling that as people get more into it and as Lisa becomes better known for her particular area, a lot of people are going to be talking about this because it's, it is in fact a source of more understanding of who and what we are, what death is. What reality is just everything that it's important for us to really come to better know. I'm mean, I'm so excited about this book. Um, when we come back, we're gonna we're gonna be talking about what's next for Lisa. She'll give you her website again, and and then I'm gonna have some final thoughts. But meanwhile, of course, this is Roberta Grimes on Seek Reality, and everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back.
1: Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or wi-fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone radio show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Guilda Wiaka, X-1 Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080 courtesy of AudioNow. No smartphone app or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213 213-
3: Welcome back to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes and my wonderful, wonderful guest, Lisa Smart, who wrote a book about things no one else has ever thought to research. That's one of the things I love about being an afterlife researcher. There's always so much more to know. And Lisa, what surprised you most in this research that you did on the period, more extended period before people die and what they say and and, and all of that? What,
4: What surprised you most? I think what surprised me most is some of what we had spoken about before the break is that it seems very clear to me now in a way that I had not imagined before that consciousness, something like terminal lucidity or these sustained narratives that we hear people have these, you know, we were talking about the train over a period of time, people tracking these narratives over weeks, how do they do that? If their brain is completely decayed or, you know, you know, I mean, how, how did this happen? So, and then of course the, the, the the prevalence of visitations completely surprised me. I would have to say that most of my research surprised me. I I was absolutely um, in awe of the things I discovered as I did, you know, as I looked at words at the threshold
3: here's a here's a quote from lisa how does one explain terminal lucidity complex metaphors conversations with the deceased paradoxical language sustained narratives and more without at least considering the possibility there is consciousness that lives outside of our physical brains you discovered the truth and you certainly came at it from an interesting direction lisa <laughs> but that's in fact the case our our minds are nowhere near our our brains are two-way radios and the heads of meat robots. That's really all they are. Mm. But t- tell, tell mm. us what your website
4: is again and how, if people can reach you, how they can reach you. Great. Um. www.finalwordsproject.org. And there is a tab on the website, and that's called Share Your Story. And we're still collecting Final Words accounts. Or people can just email me at finalwordsproject at And I love to be in conversation with people about their final conversations. So please feel free to contact me through the website or through email. And uh, I also offer a free introductory chapter from the book on the website so people can sign up and, and get that. And I really recommend this book.
3: There is no other book that talks about this period. And Lisa is a natural sort of scholar, researcher. So she talks mm-hmm. about it not in a sort of breathless New Age way, but in a clinical way, which I found very engaging, to tell you the truth. It made it mm-hmm. – you're, you're, you. you're a nice companion, and that's one thing people need, oh, to, need to know about authors. So your dad got you involved thank in you. this. Have you heard from him since you, he
4: transitioned? I have, and that also surprised me. Um, A few weeks before, after my father died, I was sitting writing in my journal as I do most mornings, and I heard his voice loud and clear, loudly and clearly. And he said he wanted to share a poem with me for my mother. And I wrote it down, and over a period of about a year and a half, uh, 38 poems came. And, you know, I'm, there's still a part of me, the part of me that is more analytical says, well, maybe it's just my imagination. Maybe uh-huh. it's just... Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know what? It, it they gave my mother great comfort and their beautiful poems. And when people ask me about them, I just say, "Well, they were inspired by my father." Because I still don't know quite what it is. It sounds like you have a much stronger belief or sense of what it is. But I'm—it's it, your dad. Was he a,
3: was he a poet before he transitioned? Yeah, was... he loved he loved oh. poetry. So, so now, yeah. that's what he's doing now. That's the fun he's having. <laughs> and he wants to share it with you. <laughs> and now now you're you're gonna have to come out. We all come to a point in our lives. I'm a lawyer by profession. <laughs> and you're gonna have to come out and say, Well, this is this is who I really am. It was funny uh, coming out to my clients. they the ranged from, oh, isn't that great to uh what? Now as to this next clause in the contract, they didn't want to know about it. <laughs> But I, nobody dropped me, and nobody will drop you either. So um, I hope that you'll you'll write a, a, a you know put those books to those uh, poems together in a book.
4: You know poems oh, of my, poems of my father. People would love to see that. That's so lovely. You know, it's funny about this whole idea of coming out because it's a very interesting idea to me, and I think for me. Um, the divine expresses itself through data. You know, I mean, this this project to me is divine, and it yes. is my coming out. And, oh, yes. And it's, it's, to me, I very happily have my, I love suspending uh, disbelief, but on both sides, you know, and, and for me, yeah. I love the feeling of just um, having my mind open because I do think it's such a great and grand mystery that... Um, I'm just open to whatever comes, but I'm not. I don't feel that I can fully give the words yet to what the mystery is. Do you know well, what I mean?
3: I totally know what you mean. I've I've spent 50 years in this field, oh, and it's an ever deeper understanding yes. of the very complex reality, as complex as yes. the physical reality and everything that it has to do with it. So I, I kind of envy you the start of your journey because you have so yeah. much joy ahead of you. I I just want to make sure people know how to get your book. Her name is Lisa Smart with two T's, S-M-A-R-T-T, because she's extra smart. And the the book is called Words at the Threshold. And it is just, as I say, it's a great book. Like all wonderful books, it's to the point... And she's a she's somebody that you want to sort of share the journey with. So um, I mean, I thought it was sort of poetic, almost in places. Very, very beautiful. Very beautifully done. Thank you. Fun to watch you having these things dawn on you because you're 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 trying to be a researcher, but you know, look at what's (laughs) happening here. This is a little boggling. It was it was was really fun to read. so I, I really recommend it strongly. Oh, <laughs> I mean in fact I'm I'm very choosy about what I'm what I do this with, but I'm adding it to the bibliography of all my fun books from now on. And as we reissue the, the initial ones, it will be in there as well. So people will be sure to find it.
4: Oh, thank you. Any any thoughts about what's next for you? Well, already I'm getting emails from people from other countries and other cultures and other languages. I think the next next step is going to be cross-linguistic. Look at final words. Oh, great. Um, that yeah I hope um, that is something I want to do before I pass on uh, in my life and the other thing is Raymond Moody talks about the nonsense taboo how we're so afraid of nonsense and in a lot of the transcripts I received they were wonderful but still people are very hesitant to share some of the gibberish or the real nonsense that they love to say and and we really can't do the kind of research we want to do until we still get more and more samples of the language of something like, yes, I'd like some scrambled eggs, but where would you reappear? You know, when we have those really <laughs> right. nonsensical phrases, yes. that that is also language. That is also language, the things that don't make sense. And, and- we really believe there might be a cross-dimensional aspect to that kind of nonsense. I'm pretty
3: confident there is. That is exciting. Well, we've been talking with Lisa Smart, and her book, Words at the Threshold, is a must-read, and we're going to have Lisa back again because, frankly, we spent this whole hour laughing, which is one thing I really especially (laughs) enjoy doing. But meanwhile, you've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, and I'm so glad you've been here today. This has been especially fun for me. Please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began. You never will end. And when you really get what that means, it's going to change everything in your life for the better. Next week, our guests are going to be our wonderful friend, the world's greatest evidential medium, Suzanne Wilson. She's written a terrific new book called Soul Smart, for which I was privileged to write the foreword. I helped her edit it, too. It's been great fun. For the first time in her book, dead people tell us what they know about doing afterlife communication, so we get to see the process from the other side. It's a great book. I can't wait to share it with you. This week, we've been, we've been talking with Lisa Smart. That's Smart with two T's. Her final words project is the best new piece of recent scholarship that's been done in the field of afterlife research in probably more than a decade. Her book, Words at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death, I think is a must read. And what's most compelling to me about all the many kinds of afterlife evidence, all of it, is the way it perfectly fits together. Her book fits right in with everything else that people have done. It was a little missing piece we're now fitting in. When you read Lisa's book and when you read each of these little pieces, you're going to be struck with an ever deeper awareness that the threshold between life and death is real. And in reality, our minds do never end. My nonfiction books are Liberating Jesus, my Thomas, The Fun of Dying, The Fun of Growing Forever, and The Fun of Living Together. They're available from bookstores on Amazon, everywhere, audiobooks in 33 languages worldwide, And I love to hear from people. So if you want to talk about any of my books or really anything at all, just contact me through the contact block on RobertaGrimes.com. I answer every email. I used to say, if you don't hear in 24 hours, send flowers, but I can no longer say that. Sometimes, I'm sorry, it takes me two or three days, but I answer everyone, and I love hearing from you. Past episodes of Seek Reality are available on webtalkradio.net on iTunes. And there's a free Seek Reality app that's available in the iTunes store. People tell me they love it, so I'm so glad we did that. Earlier episodes, of course, are being rebroadcast a year later by our friends at Dream Vision 7 Radio. I love those folks. And if you're ever wondering where Seek Reality can be heard right now, just go to robertagrimes.com and click on the radio tab. I want you to know I'm thrilled that you're there. If I ever forget to say it in a given episode, just please hear it in your heart. I especially love the fact that you listen, and, and I'm grateful for that. Meanwhile, of course, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one shared reality, knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being, and you are always and forget forever. You are infinitely loved.